Good morning. If you are able, would you please stand with us for the reading of God's Word? Today we are in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 43 and going through verse 65. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled." And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a loincloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat, and if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up, or if it's on your phone, to open it and scroll to Mark chapter 14 as we continue walking through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're on a journey through the Gospel of Mark. We'll take, um, not next week, but the first week of December, we'll take a break for four weeks of Advent, um, where we're going to just walk through and rehearse the greatest story, the story of redemption, from Genesis to Jesus' birth, uh, and then we'll get back into Mark at the new year, finish it out, and then journey on some other things in the spring. So, uh, so if you are with us or want to get there with me in Mark, chapter 14. We're going to dive into this passage and to kind of uh, catch us up and get us into where we're going. We're in a very uh, stressful, we're in a very anxiety creating, uh, a very difficult and challenging time and circumstance for Jesus and his disciples. Uh, One that's maybe in detail different than the circumstances or situations that you might face, but not 
different in, uh, in experience, uh, in emotion, in, in grief, in sorrow, in anxiety, in stress, uh, that we all go through those kinds of moments. And so last week, if you want to go back and listen to the podcast, we looked at what does Jesus do in preparation for walking through a circumstance and time of life that's going to be filled with stress, uh, that's going to be scary and afraid. And we saw that Jesus goes to commune with the Father in prayer. This week, we see what Jesus does when that actually happens. So last week was preparation for those circumstances. Today is now the circumstance happens. What does Jesus do? And so, so as we walk through this, we're walking into and continuing the story of an incredibly stressful uh, last few hours of the life of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, he's told them over the last handful of hours, uh, Judas is going to betray me. Didn't tell them it was Judas. Kind of gave him a secret in on that with, uh, with John. He told them they were all going to run away. Peter says, no, I'm not. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, and we see them go to the mountain uh, to pray. And as they're praying, Jesus come back and say some very clear and also, uh, I'd say, probably exposing or relatable words. Uh, when we find ourselves in a spiritually weary place, he says, your spirit's willing, but your uh, flesh is weak. Can you not just pray with me for a, a while uh, to prepare themselves for this stressful, anxiety, circumstance and situation ahead of them? And so they, they were there in preparation, and now they're in this moment of stress and anxiety, uh, this moment of, uh, of hardship, this, this moment of, uh, of tragedy as it begins to unfold with Jesus and his disciples. And so we're going to walk through and work through this passage, and at the end of it, we're going to come back and reflect on um, what we see three different groups or individuals do in the face of stress and anxiety uh, circumstances in this passage. So, so in this moment, um, Jesus only says one sentence in all of these verses. Uh, so this is a moment where we learn not from Jesus' instruction uh, in words. He's not telling us, hey, uh, this is how you pray. Pray like this. Though your Father in heaven. It's not a moment of Jesus' teaching uh, verbally where we're hearing his words, but it's a moment where we're learning by seeing, uh, by observing what actually happens in Jesus' life and to those that are, are around him. So, so as we walk through this story, Towards the end, we'll unpack and see uh, three most common, I'd say probably puts all three of us in a bucket of a way we act or can act in circumstances that are incredibly stressful and difficult and hard uh, circumstances in life. Uh, so, so let's start by diving into Mark chapter 14, verse 43, and unpack this story a little bit. So again, they're on the mountain, they're in the garden of Gethsemane, uh, they're, they're praying, and Jesus just finishes uh, confronting Peter, James, and John for sleeping on him uh, instead of praying, and he says, wake up, our, my betrayer is here. In verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, and the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. And now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, this one I will kiss, is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went uh, to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they led, laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against me uh, uh, against a robber with clubs and swords to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. 
And a young man followed them, or followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. And he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So as the story continues to unfold, Jesus tells them bad stuff's going to happen and you're all going to run away. You're all going to flee. And then bad stuff starts to happen. The betrayal of Jesus, which he's just talked about at dinner, uh, happens uh, that very night. And so Judas, uh, it's, it, picture this, it's the middle of the night. Um, and Judas is not with the other 10 or uh, 11 disciples praying, either with uh, those who are off a little bit or James, John, and, uh, and Peter. Uh, he's not there, but he comes with a posse. Uh, so uh, he goes to, uh, a few days before, he goes to the uh, Jewish leaders and says, hey, I'll betray Jesus to you. Uh, and he begins seeking an opportunity to do so. This is the opportunity. This is the moment. Jesus is by himself with his disciples in the dark, in a garden, uh, an olive tree garden. Uh, Judas knows where he's at, so he goes to the temple, gets the high priest guards and a mob of people with clubs and swords, and brings them to catch and seize Jesus. The opportunity to betray him is at hand. And so in the middle of the night, uh, put yourself in the position of one of Jesus' disciples. You, You can't stay awake, you're tired, you're sleeping outside on the ground, and some people with probably fire torches of some sort, uh, they're probably being fairly loud. They have clubs and swords come up uh, to you. I would imagine Jesus comes back to Peter, James, and John, and then they kind of regroup as him and the 11 disciples. The crowd mob comes around them, and Judas, he tells them, I'm going to betray him by kissing him. I'll tell you uh, which one he is. They probably would have known by look, but maybe it's dark. Um, But uh, I think what happens here is it shows um, this nearness and closeness to Jesus that Judas had, uh, yet his heart to betray him. And so he goes up to Jesus and he kisses him on the face to give them a sign, that's the guy that you need to seize. That's the guy that you need to get. I don't know, maybe, maybe the disciples um, are like uh, not going to let anybody come up to Jude, Jesus, but Judas knows Jesus, so Judas can get close enough. And so he gets close enough to show them in the dark, this is the guy. They seize and grab Jesus, um, and as they seize and grab Jesus, uh, the disciples respond in a few different ways. You have uh, one of them who we know because, like I've shared this with, with you before, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, the stories of the life of Jesus, are like a, uh, a movie being told from different perspectives. The same story, different perspectives being told. Uh, we know that, that Peter is the one with the dagger. Uh, Here, Mark doesn't tell us names. He doesn't tell us that Peter's the one with the dagger. Uh, But we know from the other stories that Peter is the one who pulls out a sword and he lunges at one of the servants of the high priest and slices his ear off. He also clues us in in Luke that Jesus tells him to stop, picks up the ear, and miraculously puts it back on the guy's head. So, uh, I mean, a little shocking moment. We also see in some of the other Gospels some crazy moments here. When Jesus, when they say, uh, he says, who do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. They all are supernaturally blown back onto the ground by his one statement of I am he. They're physically thrown back onto the ground. If you're one of these guys in this mob or crowd, you're probably a little like, who is this guy? that we just showed up to arrest. He's putting ears back on people. He's blowing people away literally with his mouth by speaking. Uh, And and this whole scenario is taking place. Uh, And it's one of those where you can imagine if you were in the place of the disciples, Jesus has kind of clued you in. He's told you he's going to die, but you didn't really get it. He told you he's going to rise from the dead. You definitely didn't get that. Uh, And and he's told you that he's going to get arrested. And he's told you you're going to run away and hide. And now 
this crowd you know is trying to catch Jesus is here at night, fully armed with weapons in the dark. It would have been probably shocking, disorienting, a mob with weapons approaching you and your friends in the middle of the night to grab your teacher, your boss, one of your best friends, the person that you had walked away from everything to follow. I would imagine the disciples would have said something like, oh no, it's happening, or like, what's going on? I'm scared. What, what do we do, guys? What do we do? Hey, who, what, do we do? what do we do? What do we do? Judas comes up and does what Jesus said would happen. He betrays him. Peter, echoing his words, I'll die with you, maybe screaming them out loud, draws his sword to defend Jesus. Because in the last few verses, we see him say, even if I must die with you, I will not turn from you. He says, even tonight, you'll betray me three times. But he, in, in a moment of, uh, you could call it courage, probably control, uh, draws a dagger to reach out and defend Jesus. See, Jesus wasn't publicly arrested. He was arrested in the middle of the night with his best friends. And I would imagine if you were one of the disciples in this moment, it would have been uh, pretty terrifying, chaotic, shocking, disorienting scenario where people with weapons drawn come amongst you and your friends and they grab and kidnap, it feels like one of your friends, your best friend, the one who you've been following. But as we keep reading through the story, you can see here that Jesus, um, Jesus does not have any fear towards these guys. That he stands in confidence. That the same person who we saw just a few verses back is uh, sweating uh, like drops of blood and crying out to the Lord. Um, uh, that same person stands before his betrayer and his, uh, his mob to arrest him with confidence. Not fear. Hold tight to that. Hold tight to what Jesus does in this story as we walk through the rest. The disciples acted in fear, anxiety, defensiveness, uh, and they ran. We know Peter draws his sword in self-reliance to defend Jesus. We also know one of them, all of them run away. One of them runs away naked. Uh, most likely John, if you read the other Gospels, there's kind of some clues that it's most likely John. Again, I think Mark's being kind to John here. He doesn't say, hey, yeah, you know, John ran away naked. Um, I, the funny thing, if you think about this historically, is Mark's Gospel was written first, and John was definitely still alive when Mark's gospel was written. And it's likely he would have read Mark's gospel because um, it was available and distributed for decades before he died. Um, there's a likely chance Mark or John reads this and is like, oh, thanks, Mark, for not selling me out as the naked child who runs away from Jesus. Um, which is just a comedic moment, I think, when you think about it in a historical perspective. But Jesus' disciples likely respond in one of two different ways. And we see this in both of their reactions. And it's one of those things that people kind of attribute to generally the way that human beings react. Fight or flight, right? In stressful life circumstances, in moments and situations of high anxiety and fear, we either generally act out of either fight or flight. And we see Peter fight, and we see the rest of the disciples flee. Right? They run away. Why would they run away? Well, we see here. They tried to not just catch Jesus. They also grabbed John. 
So they're not, they're willing to take other prisoners. And they grab John, and John like slips out of his clothes and runs away. They say, grab him by his underwear. And he gets out of his underwear and runs away. So they're, they're in danger of being arrested as well for just following Jesus. So hold on again to fight or flight, and let's keep looking at the story. In verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So all the religious leaders, all together. The same guys who were questioning him in the temple just a few days before, trying to trap him into speaking some heresy or some treasonous words. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimonies did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it? that these men testify against you. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So as Jesus is arrested, he's taken into the temple courts, he's being tried, they're trying to pull up some charges on him, this guy's saying this, this guy's saying that, they contradict one another, they can't come to some agreement on things that Jesus has actually said that would constitute criminal action or, or punishment. And Jesus, what? What does he do? He stays quiet. Like Psalm says, like, like a sheep before the shears. He opened not his mouth. That Jesus stays quiet. That Jesus isn't trying to weasel his way out. He's not trying to provide a defense. He's not trying to correct the false testimonies that are going on around him. This guy's lying about him. This guy's lying about him. This guy says a half-truth. This guy's over here just blatantly like selling Jesus out for something he didn't do. And what does Jesus do? He's not rising to the moment in defense of himself. He's quiet. So quiet that it probably stirs angst or frustration in the high priest to where the high priest just straight up goes at Jesus. Do you have nothing to say about all this, Jesus? Do you have nothing to say? And he asks him an identity question. An aspect and a question about the what and who Jesus is. Are you the Christ? Just to clarify, the Christ is who they're looking for. Like they, they're, as a people, they're looking for, for thousands of years have been waiting, we're going to walk through this story in just a few weeks, have been looking for and longing for the Christ to come, the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. And they ask Him, are you the Christ? Are you the person we're looking for? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus makes one statement to this council, and it's about his character and his identity. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the promised child from the seed of Adam and Abraham and, uh, and through the lineage of David who would come and establish the kingdom of God and rule and reign for all of eternity. 
He is the Christ. But what's the high priest's response to this news? And the high priest tore his garments. It's an act of disgust and disagreement and, and, and grief. He tore his garment and said, what further witness do we need? We don't need anybody else to talk. Jesus has incriminated himself with that one sentence. You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So the hours of persecution, beatings, floggings, sped on, cursing, punching, crucifixion and death begins. So as we look at this story, we see the injustice done against Jesus. So all these people are gathered about and around Jesus trying to figure out something he's done so that they can criminally charge him and see to his death. And he was silent about everything except for his true identity. But they didn't want the Christ, at least not the actual Christ. And so Jesus was arrested, beaten, spit on, and eventually crucified. So why? Why would Jesus? We asked this question last week, and we should ask this question over and over as you read through the Gospels. Why would Jesus, in confidence, stand before a mob, allow them to seize him? And take him into the council. Why would he sit as men bore false witness, breaking the commands of God about him? Why would he not defend himself? Why would he not make some declarative statement to reveal truth to them in such a way that they would let him go free? Or, likely, he could have just been quiet and said nothing and walked away. But why? Hebrews 12.2 says that we should be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why was Jesus silent before a sham of a trial to convict him of a crime that could lead to his destruction and death? Because he was submissive to the will of the Father. And that's that he would die to pay for sin. See, Jesus gave himself into their hands. Jesus didn't get taken. He submitted himself. He, uh, he gave himself into. He was delivered over into their hands by God. Why? For this injustice? So that he could atone, pay for our sins in his death on the cross so that he could die in your place. See, Jesus carries himself with a confidence and security in the Father's will and plan, even in suffering and sorrow, so that he could make atonement and payment for your sin and mine. The exhortation in that moment for us is this, believe the gospel, that Jesus willingly gave himself up to die 
in your place so that by his death your sin would be paid for. So by faith in Jesus alone you could have eternal life. Believe the gospel. Jesus willingly went quietly so that he could die in your place. He could have got out of it in this moment. He could have got off the cross like they taunt him. They tell him, like, you know, why don't you get yourself down? And he could have. But he willingly went to the cross to die in your place. Because he loves you. He loves you enough to die in your place. To be beaten in your place. To be spat on in your place. So what do we do with this, this story? I, I think there's three things we see play out in the people and, and characters in this story that can help us as we look at them uh, instruct and guide us in how do we carry ourselves in moments and times of stress and anxiety and circumstances that are unwanted in life. When you find yourself in that place you never thought you'd be. In suffering and sorrow and grief and loss, in, in, in hardship and difficulty, when you find yourself in that place, there's three examples of how we typically carry ourselves or can carry ourselves in those circumstances. And they're these. We can flee, we can fight, or we can walk in faith. And so we're going to walk through these. The first one is flee. And we see ten of the disciples do this. We see ten of the disciples flee and run. Why? Because they're faced with circumstances, a mob of people who uh, likely, the reason they're able to grasp onto John is because the stories, the gospel tell John as one who was so beloved to Jesus or loved Jesus that he was almost always next to him. So it's likely that John's literally standing next to, maybe even in fear, clinging to Jesus when they seize him, and so they have the ability to grab John also. But in the moment, this moment of fear, in the circumstances where there's an armed mob there to arrest Jesus and any of his disciples they can, what do we see them do? They run in fear. They run in fear. They flee. I'm confident that you and I relate well to this. In circumstances in life of fear and anxiety and stress, when we're faced with this reality that you are not capable in this situation, you aren't powerful enough in this situation, you aren't able to execute your will in this situation, we either flee, or, or we'll get to it in a second, fight. And the disciples flee for their very lives and run. They flee and run. The shepherd is struck and the sheep scatter. In fear and anxiety, they run. In the circumstances of life you face right now that are stressful, that cause anxiety to rise up in you, or I would rather us stop using that word and start using the word worry. It's the word the Bible uses. It talks about anxiety, but it says worries. Just a little bit more tangible. We'll get back to anxiety in a minute. 
in circumstances in life that are stressful, that you don't know what you're going to do about, that you're out of control of, that you feel your powerlessness and lack of capability in, when you feel fear, we often flee. And fleeing doesn't always look like physically running away, although fleeing can look like physically running away. It can also look like emotionally running away. It can look like closing yourself off in your own concrete safe room. I'm going to flee from the dangers of the world by closing myself off from them. They can't get to me, and I'm going to hide here, fleeing. It can look like completely disconnecting from God. I'm going to to flee from God, or I'm going to flee from other people in isolation and individualism. It can be like zoning out of the world on your phone, becoming numb to what's going on around you while your heart beats and your lungs breathe. You're basically not present. Fleeing. Escaping. It can look like avoiding all conflict or relationships or situations that might be unpleasant. It can look like blatant cowardice, crumbling at a moment of tension, folding under the potential opposition and capitulating in your convictions. We flee in the face of fear. We do. Do you relate to that response? How? How do you relate to the response in circumstances that draw out in you fear? How do you relate to the response to flee? Is that you? The other one is, is fight. You see, fighting at its core is trying to stand up to the thing that is endangering you, causing this fear, trying to stand up in your own ability. This is Peter. Peter draws his sword. He draws his sword and in his own strength takes things into his own control to defend Jesus. He says in this moment, I will not forsake you even if I have to die. And in this moment, he starts the fight. He draws the sword. Oftentimes, we in moments of circumstances that cause fear in our lives, we get in fights. And sometimes, to be honest with you, we get in fights with people who are not a part of the circumstances, but they're there to fight at. And somebody you love becomes a punching bag. And in our current climate and temperature in the world we live in, it's filled with scripts and narratives that tend to intentionally charge you up to fight. To fight against anyone who's in power or is an oppressor. To fight against the government. To fight against all authority because no authority is trustworthy and everything's a conspiracy. To fight against the economic system, to fight against people who don't look like you or talk like you or eat like you or go where you go. Everyone's against you. Everyone's your enemy. Everyone looks like they're an, an opportunity to take from you. And when we live in our world with that kind of disposition and your response is to fight, it means you're trying to take control of everything and enforce your will on the situation instead of that situations will being enforced on you.
at the very core, when we, like Peter in this moment, rise to the occasion to fight, we put ourselves in the place of God. We put ourselves in the place where we go, I'm not going to trust God with these circumstances. I'm going to execute my will and my desire on this situation. I'm going to take control. You see even this in Peter, that like after Jesus gets arrested, Peter's will to fight keeps him around. Like he follows, and he stays by the guards, the other guys who like to fight. Maybe looking for an opportunity to do something. So in moments of stress and anxiety, in circumstances in life that cause you fear, do you fight? Do you step up in the moment to take control? You see, Jesus doesn't flee. He doesn't run away. And Jesus doesn't fight. Jesus walks in faith. Jesus rests in the Father's good will and good care. In a moment of anxiety and circumstances, unwanted, in fear, Jesus rests in the Father's good will and good care and walks in faith. See, Jesus displays faith in the Father's will. He doesn't grow anxious. He doesn't try to take control of the situation. He doesn't assert himself as the one in power. And he doesn't run in fear. He has faith in the Father's will and good for his life and his plan. The question for us is this. We naturally go either flee or fight. Can you and I have the same kind of faith and confidence that Jesus does in circumstances like this, that would naturally cause us to bow up in self-confidence and self-take control or to escape and run in fear? Can you and I have the same kind of faith to carry ourselves with confidence in circumstances that would either cause, because of fear, you to bow up and fight or to coward and run? And the answer is yes. Yes. But how? How? It feels often at times like we are at the mercy of life's circumstances to just kind of float through either in fleeing or fighting. How? Well, I'll say this first. It's not from you or yourself. You don't have the ability to carry yourself through these circumstances with faith in and of yourself. You can't logic or reason yourself through a scenario and situation of fear and anxiety and carry yourself through it with faith. No. It doesn't happen that way. Our confidence and ability to stand in faith and not grow weary or worried or flee in fear or fight comes from two things. It comes from believing two things. Two things that Jesus is reminded of Right before this moment, doing what? Praying and communing with the Father. Where does Jesus go before this? To the Father in prayer. And so for us, if we want to carry ourselves through life circumstances 
with faith and not fleeing in fear or standing up to fight in our own power, we have to believe two things. And this is one. Who is God? And number two, who are you to Him? Who is God and who are you to Him? And we need to go to the same place Jesus goes to be reminded of who God is and who we are. And that's in prayer and God's Word, thankfully, we have to commune with the Father and be reminded of who He is and who we are to Him. The Bible uses a variety of metaphors to help us understand and believe, really grasp who God is and who we are to Him. It uses the illustration of father and child. That He is our Father and we are His children. And that's a descriptor of, of being, of identity. He is Father, you are child. He is the one in authority. He is the one in power. He is the one who protects. He is the one who provides for. You are the recipient of His shelter, care, provision, love, security. He is Father, you are child. You have husband and wife. The Bible describes Jesus as uh, the husband of the church who willingly gave himself as a sacrifice to, uh, for his church. You have this description of Jesus as the husband and uh, uh, as you as the, the wife. And one also you have that I think we're going to, uh, I, I, I think we find great help in relationship to is the illustration of, or a metaphor of shepherd and sheep. You see this throughout the Bible. This illustration of shepherd and sheep, that he is the shepherd and you are the sheep. And that's an identity statement. It's not just fluffy words, it's an identity statement about who he is and who you are to him. And so Psalm 23 unpacks this, and I'm going to walk through it, it'll be on the screen, I'm going to go fairly quickly. But I'm confident in the face of anxiety, stressful circumstances in life, uh, if, if we would slow down and reflect on who God is, we see this in Psalm 23, and who you are to Him, it will alleviate a lot of the anxiety and desire to flee and fight because of who He is and who we are to Him. Psalm 23 verse 1 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, clarify, oftentimes, uh, I spent like five hours reflecting on this passage earlier this week. Uh, we read verse 1 as like the introduction of this passage. And because of that, we miss the very first significant statement about his identity. He is the shepherd, and because he is the shepherd, you don't need anything. You don't need to covet other people's stuff. You don't need to be envious of what other people have. This is the shepherd, you're the sheep. You have no wanting because he is the shepherd. And the shepherd is the one in power and authority. The shepherd is the one who acts completely in the good and best interest of the sheep. He is the shepherd so you don't even have wants because he will provide. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He provides the rest and nourishment that we need. You don't even have to eat standing up as a sheep. You can eat laying down in complete rest without fear of something coming. If you're ever around wildlife, they don't eat laying down because there's something could come at any moment that makes them have to run. My dogs eat laying down. It's kind of weird. They do. 
They lay down in front of their bowl and eat their food. Why? No concern, no care in the world. My food's not going anywhere. The shepherd will keep me safe. That rest and provision, nourishment is there because the shepherd gives it. He leads me by still waters. He provides me the, the water I need in a way that won't cause me anxiety or stress. He restores my soul. That the restoration to our broken, parched, starving souls comes from the shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Not I lead myself to righteousness, or, uh, or in contrast, sin leads us into unrighteousness. The shepherd leads me into righteousness. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That in life's circumstances of fear, like the disciples are currently walking through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus has no fear. Why? Because he knows the Father is with him. We can walk through life's valley of the shadow of death moments without fear because the shepherd is with us. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? I will be with you to the end of the age. It's a shepherding statement to the sheep to alleviate their fear of evil. That his rod and staff is there to comfort, to fend off and protect. He is your protection. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. That he provides the peace to the conflicts we face in life. That the shepherd prepares a table of peace for the sheep. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Why? Because you have a good shepherd. Because of the shepherd. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Secure forever. You see, He is the shepherd. His identity is the shepherd. And you are the sheep. And as a sheep, you are complete recipients of the blessings of the shepherd. You don't go get them for yourself. He gives them to you. All of these things... Uh, I, look at the not tangible things that the shepherd provides. Peace to anxiety. Rest to the, the fearful. Uh, the ability to walk in comfort in the face of evil. All of these are things that our souls at the depths of our hearts in a, uh, a mentally pandemic-driven, anxiety, chaotic world, what your soul needs, the shepherd provides. That we don't need to rise up and fight or feel fear and flee because He is our God and Good Shepherd. Because He is your Good Shepherd. You can stand right now in whatever circumstances you face in life with faith today because He is your God and you are His sheep. I want to say something briefly before we conclude. Um, 
<clears throat> we are currently in a moment in our world. I don't know. I'm not. Everybody's using the word unprecedented, so therefore everything's unprecedented, except for the word precedented, unprecedented. Um, we live in a world where, where there right now is a, a pandemic of mental struggle and conditions and uh, anxiety, all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, where people are struggling with, and they use the bucket term anxiety to catch a lot of stuff. Um, and and I, I think it's perfectly fine if you say, I, I, I'm struggling with anxiety. If you're struggling with worry. You're worried about circumstances or situations, and you're using the word anxiety to describe that. Um, because anxiety at its core is us facing either internal or external circumstances that bring to the front of your mind your powerlessness in the face of something that endangers you. At its core, it's what anxiety is. There's external or internal circumstances that are, uh, in your observation, bringing to the front your endanger and your powerlessness in those circumstances. Uh, but here's what I want you to hear me say. Uh, Christian, specifically, if you follow Jesus, uh, anxiety is not an identity. Okay? Anxiety is not an identity. Christian, don't exchange your identity as a sheep under the good shepherd, as a daughter or son of the king of the universe, for a mental disorder. Anxiety is not an identity. We live in an anxiety-stricken mental health world thing happening. Anxiety is something we struggle with. It's not something you are. Okay? Worries are things that we feel and, and we struggle with. They're not identity statements. And when we let them have identity statement power over in our lives, we become identified by sin and struggle. See, the remedy for anxiety, the disciples are in an anxious space right now in the story. The remedy for anxiety is not looking within or understanding our circumstances, but resting under the Good Shepherd. The one who is powerful over all circumstance and unmatched in his love for you. The remedy for anxiety is not identifying by it, but acknowledging you're struggling with worry. And worry's not downgrading the seriousness of the situation. Anxiety is not a, an identity statement. It's something we struggle with, not who we are. And in anxiety moments, we have the opportunity to either run away and hide and cower and escape, fight against it, or rest in faith under the sovereign care of a good God who loves you like a good shepherd, like a good father. You see, Jesus shows us in this passage, in contrast to Peter who takes matters into his own hands and the other ten disciples who run away in fear, that we can walk with confidence before whatever life circumstances we're facing, trusting God's sovereign good will and His good care for you. That we can walk through life's most difficult circumstances in faith, not in fear, fleeing, or fighting. What enables us, what enables Jesus 
to do this is knowing who God is and who He is to you. That He is your God. He is your good shepherd. You are His children. You are His sheep. Let me pray for us and we'll sing. Father, I thank You that You <clears throat> that You know that You even led the disciples into this moment in time of fear. That following Jesus in our lives does not exempt us from moments of fear. That You actually lead us, God, into circumstances in life of testing, of trial, of fear. That You don't tempt us to sin, but You lead us as we follow Jesus into circumstances of fear. And Father, we praise and thank You that we don't have to flee in fear but we can rest in your sovereign care and will. That we can walk in faith. That we can rest and be reminded who you are and who we are to you. And in that, you can give us an indescribable peace in place of fear. So Father, as we sing now, would you work in us would you bring to light the things in life that are stirring in us fear? That are causing us to feel anxious, worried, stressed. That make us want to bow up and fight. That make us want to run and hide. And in this moment, Holy Spirit, would you usher us into your presence to confess where we want to run and hide or stand and fight and help us to trust you. to walk in faith that you have us. That you have the situation in your hands. Holy Spirit, would you continue to work as we sing? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.